Hello, everyone, and welcome to Subject to Cross, a new podcast on criminal law. I am host, Caroline Donato. And I am co-host, Pete Kratza. Both from the law firm McElroy Harvey in Westchester, Pennsylvania. We are your friendly neighborhood criminal defense attorneys here to talk about everything criminal defense. And here we go. And we're back. You're Subject not here to for cross. Me. Who are you kidding? <laughs> I'm host Caroline Donato, and this is co-host. I, <laughs> I don't matter. It's Pete Kratza. Hi. I might as well be the microphone stand. So what are we talking about now, Caroline? <laughs> well, the next one on our uh, list was our first memorable case. God, I'm looking at my handwriting. <laughs> I, this is a first for me. I cannot understand my own handwriting. Well, that I guess would that be says memorable. In a millionth time for me. Yeah. I have done it literally type out all of it. God, that is really bad. Even with my reading glasses, I guess that's memorable. Um, all right, let's start with you. What is your most memorable case, Caroline? I'm actually excited to describe this one. I can't wait. So, I mean, I, I think of it as the case that made me feel like I really had wings. Like, okay, I can really do this. It was a few years ago. I think you and I were- Was it a business case? No. Oh, this was okay. when you and I were practicing together and I was no longer in the business department. You were freed. You already had your wings. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. And it was a DUI heroin case. You had the case. And you asked me to look into a possible suppression issue. Suppression meaning law enforcement conducted some form of investigation. And the way they obtained evidence was unlawful. And as a result of that unlawful seizure, search or seizure of evidence, uh, we would try to ensure that the court wouldn't allow the Commonwealth to use that evidence against our client. Is that fair? Sure. Okay. And we looked into it and uh, the... The general facts of the case from the affidavit of probable cause, the client was driving the car and the police officer stopped him for uh, an alleged windshield wiper violation. Is this coming back to you? Not yet. Okay. Uh, he's pulled over for that alleged windshield wiper violation. And the police officer um, goes over, asks for license and registration, brings it back to the car, runs his name, sees there's an outstanding bench warrant. For his arrest, I think a probation violation. Um, yeah, okay. Warmer. Is there a video of this too? There's a video. Yeah. Of this. Okay. How long ago was this? Several years ago. Oh. And the office... oh, this is when you won, and I thought there was no way you I were going to win. I was going to get to that oh, point. I ruined it, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. It's a. It's. I'm building. I'm All right, building. Go ahead. All right. Disregard that. They yeah, can. You yeah, can yeah. delete that. Keep that. Keep the suspense going. No, don't delete it. We'll just keep going. So. Um, the officer goes back to the client, tells the client about the outstanding bench warrant, um, asks the client to step out of the vehicle, brings the client to the back of the vehicle, has the client put his hands on the vehicle and conducts a search of the client, effectuating an arrest, uh, you know, picking him up for that bench warrant. And part of the pat down, he, the officer puts his hands into the client's pockets and pulls out empty baggies of suspected heroin looks at the client says, when's the last time you used? The client says, huh? And the officer says, when is the last time you used? The client said, this morning. 
So the officer turns the client around and conducts standardized field sobriety tests, ultimately arrests him for driving under the influence of suspected heroin, brings him to the hospital for a blood draw, and the blood comes back with heroin in his system. Follow? Yeah. And you know this case. How'd you win? I forget. Okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. So, well, you were supposed to litigate the case. I wrote the argument for you and gave you the case law, and you were supposed to litigate it, and then your mother had to move. Oh. Unexpectedly, all of a sudden, you had to move your mom. Okay. It was the day of, and you said, I don't think we're going to win. And I said, I think these are good issues. And you said, they're not good issues. We're not going to win. You do it. <laughs> I was just trying to buttress your confidence. Oh, yeah. I felt sure it. you weren't too nervous. Yeah, I felt it. So we had the hearing. I actually don't have a mother. <laughs> you do. It's <laughs> <That's> ridiculous. <laughs> Who says that? <laughs> so we have the hearing and we get to the part of the whole point was that the statement elicited was unlawful because he was subjected to custodial interrogation, meaning my client was subjected to custodial interrogation and he was in custody and the officer asked him a question intending to elicit an unlawful statement. I'm sorry, a statement um, of admission to a crime, which would then in turn lead him to conduct an investigation into a a DUI, which then in turn led to the blood draw, right? So absent the statement, you only had the standardized field sobriety test and the blood draw to link the client to the DUI. And when I was cross-examining the officer, I was I said, and you bring the you bring so and so, I'll call him Bob. You bring Bob to the back of the car, right? Yes. And you you pat Bob down, correct? Correct. And this is after you notice he had a, a bench warrant, an outstanding bench warrant. Yes, he wasn't free to leave. N- no, he couldn't leave. And when you do this pat down, I mean, you dig into his pockets, right? He says, yes. And I said, you're conducting a search incident to arrest just to solidify the fact that the client's in custody. Right. And he says, no, 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 it wasn't a search incident to arrest. Since, sir, it wasn't a search incident to arrest. What was it? He goes, it was a protective pat down. And I slowed down the MVR and I said, well, let's go through this step by step then because I really want to unpack what you're saying. You, you pat down his arms and his legs, correct? Make sure no weapons on him, right? And he's wearing cargo pants or shorts, correct? Yes. And you put your hands in his pockets. Yes. And you're digging in there, correct? I mean, we're looking at the same thing. Yes. I mean, your hands are really digging in there, sir. And he goes, they are. And I said, sir, if that wasn't your search incident to arrest, what does your search incident to arrest look like? And the judge was like, okay, Mr. Nato, I get the point. And, and so the statement was ultimately thrown out. And the other part, that was around the time when Birchfield came down. And this particular judge decided that Birchfield, the case law that said absent a warrant or uh, an exception to the warrant requirement, you can't take someone's blood anymore. That was the case Birchfield. And there was no warrant in this case, and uh, there was no exception to the warrant requirement. So the blood had to be had to be suppressed. But this particular judge stated that that United States Supreme Court case, North Dakota versus Birchfield, didn't apply to his courtroom. And in argument, I asked him. I, and this was a hanging judge and a judge who was armed. Hmm? Did you know that? No. Oh, yeah. He was always armed. Okay. On the bench. Why? Would that have affected your argument? No, I I never felt in fear of this judge. I actually respected him. Okay. And 
I, I did state in my argument, sir, it's my understanding that Birchfield doesn't apply to your courtroom, but I think I'd ask you to reconsider that. I think it should. And he goes, okay, Miss Donato, tell me how, show me how smart you are. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and I had a lot of fun arguing it. And ultimately, um, the, the, uh, a statement was thrown out and the blood was thrown out and we got a, a plea with probation and the client was released. And I actually have, um, that was one of those cases. It was just so exciting for me. It, it was just, okay, you can really do this. Not just prepare Pete Kratza. Do you have like a text message or something? I have an email. So when I walked out of there, no, this was a big deal to me. All right. When I walked out of there, I called my dad. Oh. And I was like, Dad. I thought it was going to be a nice, heartfelt congratulations from me. It doesn't involve me. No, you probably said it was. You probably said, "Great, I thought yeah. you were going to lose. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> you don't suck." <laughs> but I called my dad and I said, "Oh my God, here's what happened. It was so cool. And I mean, legal analysis matters, and that whole preparation mattered, and the client getting a good result, and it's fair to him. And I mean, it was very exciting. And later that night, it was a Friday." My dad sends me this email, and I wanted to read it. Are you going to tell the listeners your dad's a criminal defense attorney? I did in the oh, first okay. episode. Oh, well, how, how do we know that they listen to all the episodes? Though? My dad's a criminal defense attorney. Okay, there we go. Uh, and and he sent me this. I, I went home. I had a, you know, a drink, and I'm hanging out, and I'm feeling good about it. I'm just really happy. It was a good first case for me. And he sends me this email. He says, hi, honey. I'm glad you had such a nice day. You deserve it. You do a lot of things right and treat your clients right and work very hard, and I'm very proud of you because of that. I want you to understand that, quote, a good day, unquote, is every day when you have fulfilled your oath, no matter what the result was. It is an extraordinary honor to be a lawyer and, more particularly, to be a criminal defense lawyer. But you cannot measure whether a day was great by the result you achieved. Every day is a great day because you have the honor of representing people in the courtroom. And as long as you do your best, and as long as you fulfill your oath, that was a great day. Results, compliments from judges, are fleeting things, and they don't always happen. But you'll know when you do your best, and you fulfill your oath, that no matter what the judge says, and no matter what the result was, you have had a great day. I love you, Dad. Oh, that's sweet. You and were getting a little emotional reading I was, that, right? Because yeah. I, I feel very strongly about it. And when yeah. we've had really tough results, I have that email hanging in my office. We When we get tough results, I look at it. I'm like, well, I did my best. So today yeah. was good. That's really sweet. Yeah. What was your first memorable case? Oh, geez, I have nothing like that. <laughs> I mean, my first, my most memorable case I lost. Uh, I When I was in the public defender's office, you were on the circuit doing preliminary hearings, and if nobody in a courtroom left, then you were on the circuit forever. So I was on the circuit for over two years, and you can only do preliminary hearings exclusively. First, it's like being in a toll booth. Eventually, it's going to drive you crazy. So the point is that the only way that you would get a trial in the Court of Common Pleas was to take a trial that nobody else wanted to, to handle. None of the trial attorneys, <clears throat> excuse me. So they would be these awful cases where the client was clearly guilty but insisted on a trial or the client was just such a pain in the you know what and the lawyer, you know, didn't like the lawyer that they were trying to get somebody else to do them. So I took one of these cases where it was both clear 
that the client was absolutely guilty um, and he was a pain in the you-know-what. But he kind of liked me. I had done his preliminary hearing and had apparently impressed him enough with my cross-examination because at this point I was probably on the circuit for over two years. So unlike if they listened to the first episode, how horrible I was at the beginning, I'd become pretty effective at this point, I think. So it was a hand-to-hand drug sale in Westchester witnessed by two police officers. (laughs) Why was this going to trial? Why aren't you working this out? (laughs) Because they were offering him too much time because he had an awful prior record. So basically, and I drive by this all the time now and still think of the case. I wish I could say the client's name, but I can't. Um, It's a train trestle in Westchester that you drive under the train tracks. So he's literally standing on top of the train tracks, handing drugs to another kid when two Westchester police officers drive under the thing and look up and say, oh, there's so-and-so selling drugs. <laughs> so our defense, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. our defense was that he was buying drugs. Okay. And that they had made an assumption, perhaps based on race, that he was the one selling the drugs as opposed to purchasing the drugs. How'd that go over? The jury was out for six and a half hours. And the prosecutor in the case, who's now a defense attorney and a friend of mine, um, was uh, very nervous. You know, they thought it was like a slam dunk win. I mean, geez, they had two police officers saying they witnessed the guy selling drugs. And um, he came to me at one point at like four hours in and was uh, saying, would your guy plead to possession? I'm like, of course he would plead to possession. I mean, that the part of the defense was he possessed the drugs. But he wasn't quite able to get permission to make that offer. And a uh, poor client was convicted. Uh, he was very happy with the job I had done. Uh, he went up to the judge afterwards, shook his hand. Um, that judge later sentenced him to something like 18 to 84 months in prison. What was so I don't offer? think he made much of a of an impression upon him. The problem with the 1884 is the max, right? Yeah. The 84. And this gentleman didn't particularly... Uh, well, what was the offer? Do well with authority, so he ended up doing most of the eighty-four months. Sure, uh, I think the offer was about eighteen. Oh, I don't okay. think he did any worse going to trial, except sure. for the maximum. But it was fun, um, and it, you know, it was the first time I had responsibility to to do a trial like that. I pr- talk about being prepared. I was prepared. It was in the old courthouse, this awful courtroom where there were like, <clears throat> excuse me. Pylon, you wouldn't believe some of these court, you, the courtrooms you have now up there compared to what we were in then. It was bizarre. You would literally, you could be arguing to the jury, and if you were standing in the wrong spot, you'd be like behind a pylon. They couldn't see you. Huh. Um, or you could walk into the pylon. It was really, really nasty. But that was my first trial. Did you walk into the pylon? I did not. And then uh, soon after that, I had another case that nobody wanted. It was a DUI where the guy was on video, seemingly extremely drunk, being interviewed by, I think it was their different police. And I almost won that one too. Um, (laughs) Almost? Yeah. My defense was that he was depressed and that that's why he he seemed to be a little bit slow and lethargic in his interview. I did have a great- That it wasn't alcohol. I had a great impeachment um, moment in that trial where on the video, he's saying, you know, I, I think I've, it's over. I'm just going to kill myself. And I guess you guys hear that all the time. And the one police officer says, yeah, we do hear it all the time. 
So I'm cross-examining this police officer. I'm like, when well, he told you he was going to kill himself. Yeah. And yes, he did. And you didn't care about that, did you? Oh, I did. We take the, you know, any threats to the, uh, to the safety of the people we're arresting. Seriously. Cue video. Um, so the jury didn't like that much. Did you drop the mic after? I, I should have. Um, what happened in that case was that the, the client got arrested for another DUI in the, the, the evening between when we closed evidence and I was supposed to do my closing argument the next day, he got picked up on another DUI in Montgomery County. So we go into the judge's chamber, the prosecutor who I knew from my never ending days on the circuit, just couldn't stop laughing that this guy had been arrested for a DUI in the middle of another DUI trial. It was a bench warrant for a DUI that he had just not bothered to tell me about because he didn't want to distract me. Um, and the judge, who's now a superior court judge, uh, has us in chambers <laughs> and she says, well, Mr. Kratz, what do you propose to do? And I said, I don't need him here. I'll just close without him. And she's like, no, it doesn't work that way, Mr. Kratz, because the jury's going to want to know where he is. So he eventually came back. Um, he was convicted. The, I do remember my closing in that case involved meatloaf. Why? And also, was this a first, second, or third? I don't remember. I mean, it wasn't a first, mm. clearly. Well, you never yeah. know. Back then, you could get four DUIs, I think, in seven years before you went to state prison. But Meatloaf, not the food Meatloaf, but the musical artist. I, mean, I was really proud of this reference. I studied my jury. I saw that they were probably Meatloaf fans. You know, that, that I didn't age even know group. there was a band named Meatloaf. Oh, my God. Bad Out of Hell. It, it's, it's an iconic album. So, and, and I'm sure my jury knew it. Two out of three ain't bad. You know the song, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad? I'm not going to sing it. I, I well, you'll have only to know it if you put it on your iPod. Two out of three ain't bad by not right now. No, go ahead. I'm listening um, to you. And I argued in terms of the elements of the offense that they had proven two out of three. <laughs> and I said, with all apologies to Meatloaf, two out of three ain't good enough. Get it? That's so good. Ain't bad, Wait, ain't hold good on. Enough. Yeah, that song. Yeah, exactly. It's a great song. It's a great album. Meatloaf. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why? Well, it didn't work because he was convicted, but he was on videotape and he appeared to be pretty intoxicated. And the issue, listener, uh, when, with cases like that, <laughs> is that when you have a client, we're not allowed to argue false facts. But if we have a client who's telling us that one thing happened um, and we can credibly argue that, um, that's what I was doing in that case. You know, he told me. Well, I can't tell you what he told me, but based upon my argument, you probably can figure out that it was more of a depression thing than an intoxication thing. I don't. I think he refused a blood or breath test in that case, um, and that was my argument. Um, and it helped. And juries don't like it when any witness, let alone the police, lie to them. And it was clear that that police officer did lie about that one fact. Probably kept them out for a lot longer than they otherwise would have been. And back in those days, when you would take those cases, and it was how long you could keep the jury out, right? How long do you keep the jury out on that one? Uh, it wasn't six hours, but it was a while. Um, and ultimately, he was convicted. Um, eventually, I did start winning. <laughs> Good. Um, but uh, those were my most memorable early cases. Well, very good. You won yours. Oh, Show yeah. off. I, you know, I'm just here to succeed.
Thank you for joining this week's Subject to Cross. Until next time.